In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 105. 105. This psalm has no title, but almost all scholars believe it was written by David and sung at the time when the ark was brought from the house of Obed Adum, the Gittite, to the place which David has prepared for it, as we read it in First Chronicles chapter 16. Psalm 105 continues from the past two psalms on the same theme which is praising and thanking God. Psalm 103, Psalm 104, both of them start by praise the Lord, O my soul. These two psalms, praising and thanking God for his goodness. Psalm 105, praise God for his special care and provision for Israel in fulfillment of his promises. And it is one of the four historical psalms. What do I mean by historical psalms? Praising God for what he has done in the history of Israel. And these historical psalms are Psalm 78, 105, 106, 136. And 136 is the second host in Midnight Praises. These historical psalms do not give a historical account as much as they proclaim God's compassion and faithfulness to fulfill his covenants, his promises, despite the unfaithfulness of men. This psalm and the following psalm, 105 and 106, are connected. But they reveal two different sides from the relationship between God and his people during a long period with Israel in the Old Covenant. Psalm 105 speaks about God's faithfulness and power toward us. Psalm 106 tells us the sad story of repeated failure and rebellion on the part of his people. So Psalm 105 speaks about God's faithfulness toward us. Psalm 106 about the rebellion and the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel toward God. The greater part of this psalm highlights God's special work with Israel, beginning with the covenant with Abraham, focusing on the exodus from Egypt and entering into the promised land. Also, this psalm confirmed that the promised land is a divine gift. They did not get it because they were powerful in the wars or expert in their military power. No, it's a divine gift. And the son asked this generation to remember that the continued possession of the promised land depends on obedience to the covenant God. Because this land was given to them as part of the covenant. 
if they continue in their faithfulness to the covenant God, then they will continue to possess this land. But if they disobeyed the God, God actually will let them be exiled from this land. And this is what happened in the Babylonian captivity. This psalm is 45 verses, verse 1 to 5, a call to praise God, 6 to 16, God's goodness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 17 to 22, God's goodness to Joseph in Egypt, 23 to 26, to Israel and Moses in Egypt, then 27 to 36, the plagues sent on the Egyptians, 37 to 38, deliverance of Israel, 39 to 43, God's care for them in the wilderness, and 44 to 45, bringing them into Canaan. Since it is a long psalm, we will stop at verse 22. Verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds, among the people. Previous Psalms focused on hysteric ones, the soul to bless the Lord. As I told you, Psalm 103 and 104, both of them started by, bless the Lord, O my soul. So in Psalm 103 and 104, he is speaking to his own soul, bless the Lord, O my soul. But now in Psalm 105, David encourages himself and others to give thanks to the Lord. And this psalm will give many reasons for this thanksgiving. This is the first of several quickly stated encouragement to honor and worship God. So, all give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. This is the first of several quickly stated encouragement in this psalm to honor and worship God. What does it mean, call upon his name? Some interpret it means proclaim his name, make it known to others, call upon them to serve and worship the Lord. Because God alone deserves to be called upon to praise and to rely on. But others interpreted call upon his name means pray to him to help you to do the praise and the thanksgiving properly. For without his assistance, no one will be able to accomplish it. As we say in the introduction of the Midnight Praises, teach us how to stand before you in the time of prayer and to send to you the appropriate zoxology, the appropriate praise, the appropriate thanksgiving. So we ask God who are calling upon his name to help us in order to know how to stand before him during the time of praises and to offer to him the appropriate zoxology. Proclaim or make his, known his deeds among the people. His deeds 
refers to his action, God's action on behalf of his people in delivering them from the land of Egypt and all what he did in this journey from Egypt to the promised land. So David invites God's people to praise and beseech God and to announce his wonderful works to other nations. When he said among the people means speak in all directions among the Gentiles about the wonderful works of God that the Gentiles maybe from the knowledge of his work begin to know God, praise him and entreat their creator. Saint Jerome commented on make known his deeds among the people and he said Shame on the Jews who say that his wonders and deeds were realized only in Israel. So he said, no, it should be known to all the people, all the Gentiles in the whole world. Verse 2, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Sing psalms. As in many other places in the book of Psalm, God's people are told the importance of praising God in singing. The song should be sung to him, not to others, not to an audience, not merely for the sake of the music or merely for one's own pleasure, but to glorify and praise the Lord. Talk of all his wondrous works. Those who are full of gratitude to God for all his mercies that he has granted them cannot stop from speaking of God's goodness when they converse with others. We read in the paradise of monks when two elders meet each other they spoke about the wondrous works of God. Verse 3. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. After he invited them to an expression of praise, sing to the Lord, David now invites them to rejoice and be glad internally by saying glory in his holy name. When we glory in our heart for having come to the knowledge of God, the author of all good, then we will rejoice in him. As if he is saying, don't seek the Lord in grief and sorrow but in joy and gladness, as he said in another psalm, enter into the courts with joy and gladness. For the getting hold of him surpasses all other earthly treasures. Unfortunately, people may glory in many things. Some glory in wealth, status, pleasure, entertainment. But God's people rightly find their greatest glory and joy in his holy name. 
Verse 4, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. God's people are invited not only to seek God himself, but also to seek his strength. Even God, before his ascension to heaven, he said to the disciple, don't depart from Jerusalem till you receive power from on high. This strength is given to God's people when they seek him. As St. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He stresses for us the necessity of having constant appeal to God, seek his face evermore. St. Augustine very properly says that they who seek the face of the Lord, having already found him through faith, they already found him, while they are still looking for him through hope and desire. In practical term, what does it mean to seek the face of the Lord? The one who always seeks the face of the Lord is the one who exercises his faith in reflection and meditation. Is the one who have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Is the one who lives with a pure heart and good conscience. Is the one who is always longing to behold the face of God. Verse 5, remember his marvelous works, which he has done, his wonders, and the judgments of his mouth. This is the constant danger that God's people would forget his marvelous works. Because the subject of God's praise are his wonderful works. If we forget them, how we are going to praise him? Wonderful works include his omnipotence, his supreme wisdom, his goodness, which if faithfully turned in the mind and reflected on, will elevate it to the love of God and longing for him. Actually, it dishonors God when we forget his great works with us. And we will always drift to the forgetfulness if we don't actively remember. That's why it's a commandment. Remember his marvelous works. Then he wants us to remember the judgments of his mouth. What does it mean, the judgment of his mouth? The laws, the statutes given at Sinai. Or maybe the judgment that he brought upon Pharaoh and others who persecuted his people. Verse 6, O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So verse 6 is an explanation of verse 5. He's addressing the Israelites as the seed of Abraham, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Why he is addressing the Israelites as such? To remind them of their privilege and their duty. So when he said, remember his marvelous work, 
Now he is reminding them with their privileges and in turn their duty to remember the wondrous work of God. As if he is saying, you who have descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not from Esau or Ishmael, for you are his servants, his chosen people. You children of Jacob, his chosen ones. This is mentioned to distinguish the people intended here from the other seed of Abraham in the line of Ishmael. For in Isaac his seed was called, not in, Abraham, not in Ishmael, which actually were the children of the promise. St. Paul explained this in the letter to Galatians, that the seed of Abraham is Isaac and not Ishmael. God have chosen them as his own servants to give them his law and to teach them how he should be worshipped. St. Augustine observed that however applicable this may be to the children in the flesh of Abraham and Jacob, verse 6, to the children, biological children of Abraham and Jacob, but according to St. Augustine, it is more applicable to the children of Abraham and Jacob by faith. As St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 7, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So starting verse 7, David begins the praise of God in his own person, acting as a spokesman for his people. And first of all, declares his Godhead by saying, He is the Lord our God. So as representative of the Israelites, he starts to praise God. And the first thing actually that God chose us, the dust, the ashes, the undeserving, to be his chosen ones and to be a father to us and who are his children. Although he is the Lord God. And he explained his universal dominion. His judgment are in all the earth. His judgment are in all the earth. So before focusing on the works and promises God made unto Israel, he reminds them that God is over all the earth. His covenant, yes, it focuses on Israel in the Old Covenant. But this doesn't take away from his interest and lordship over the whole earth. The law of God has a universal range and command obedience of all the people. Verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. So after he praised God for his divinity and his universal dominion, now in verse 8, 
he is praising God for his faithfulness. God entered into a covenant with Israel. And that covenant still holds good. He has not forgotten it and will never forget it. God, whose judgments are all over the world, and who as supreme king judges all, he, that very same great God, remembered the covenant he made and which he intended to be forever. Though the covenant was made long since, though many generations of people have passed by, though great changes have occurred, yet his covenant and promise have never been forgotten by God. All his promises have been fulfilled. All ever will be. And he said for a thousand generations, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations means for many generations to come or any number generation, that's always. In order to confirm the truth of what he said, he repeats it and explains it at greater length. So, for example, God made a promise to Abraham that he will give this land to his descendant. And the covenant with Abraham is mentioned in Genesis 15 and 17. And the oath sworn to Abraham in Genesis 22 and was confirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26. You can see how God actually repeating the covenant several times to confirm the truth of this covenant. And then he repeats it again to Jacob in Bethel when he was on his way to Padan Aram, Genesis 28. And again in the same place on his return, God confirmed the covenant after his name had been changed to Israel. The promise made to Abraham was renewed to Isaac and Jacob because in them it was limited to a particular branch of Abraham's descendant. That's why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it is not from Abraham to Ishmael or from Isaac to Isa. And concerning the goal of those covenants and oath to them, Zechariah the priest, the father of John the Baptist, said, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This horn of salvation is Jesus Christ. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So that is the goal of the covenant, to be saved from our enemies and from hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Verse 9, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it 
to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So what does it mean for a statute? Means God vowing himself for its fulfillment in the same manner. So with Jacob, he vowed himself that he will fulfill this covenant. God, who of his grace and goodness has hereby laid himself under obligation to fulfill these things. Because you cannot break a covenant and God with oath he confirmed this covenant. But how come in verse 10 he said everlasting covenant? Is he speaking here about the promised land but is this everlasting covenant? So, everlasting covenant means to be remembered, commanded, repeated, confirmed by the Lord. It can never be broken. But St. Augustine explained everlasting covenant. He said, how is it to be understood as everlasting? Since that earthly inheritance, the promised land, could not be everlasting. Then everlasting here doesn't refer to the promised land. And for this reason, it is called the Old Covenant or Old Testament because it is abolished by the New Covenant. So here the reference everlasting covenant is for the New Covenant that God will establish with us. Verse 11, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan. And we know land of Canaan is a symbol of the kingdom of heaven. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Land of Canaan was given by promise to the patriarchs as their lot or portion of the earth as that which they and their descendant were to possess as their own. So God entered into a covenant and part of this covenant to give them as inheritance the land of Canaan. And the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had a right to it by promise because God promised them. And their seed will possess it by God. He will give it to them himself as it were with his own land. So as allotment of your inheritance mean, you will take it not by purchase, but by the grace of God, not by any merit of your own. And in the same way, we will inherit the kingdom of God just by the promise from God, not by our merits, not by our works. That's why it is considered a type or a symbol of the heavenly inheritance. Because as the land of promise here on earth was given to them by a promise, the same, the heavenly inheritance is given to us by promise. And as Canaan was a land prepared and ready, so is the kingdom of heaven prepared by God the Father and by the mediation of his son. 
And as the Israelites passing through the wilderness met with many difficulties, so the people of God passed through the wilderness of this world will go through many tribulations before they lay hold on eternal life. Verse 12. When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. So God gave them this promise when they just very few. So nobody would believe that this very few people will inherit this promised land. So David emphasizes the marvelousness of the divine promise by pointing out that it was made, this promise, when the patriarchs were but few in number. And it seemed utterly unlikely that they would ever become the owners of this land. Verse 13, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. So now David is describing how they migrate from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. They migrate among different nations, Canaan, Egypt, Philistine, and we can read this in the book of Genesis. They had their seasons of wandering, but were guarded and protected by God. For example, Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans and journeyed to Egypt. Jacob also lived for many years with Laban in the land of the people of the East. Then verse 14 and 15, wonderful and strong verses, and give all of us until now this sense of security and peace, because it applies to all the children of God. While they were wandering from nation to nation and from kingdom to kingdom, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. He rebuked kings as Pharaoh, Abimelech, king of Gerar, whom he reproved in Genesis 20. Do not touch my anointed, but the patriarchs were not anointed, were not actually anointed, but the term is applied to them as bearing the seal of divine consecration. They were sanctified and set apart for God's purpose. For example, Abraham is called a prophet in Genesis 20, verse 7, as intercessor. Isaac, before his death, predicted to his son Esau that he would be a servant to his younger brother Jacob. Jacob uttered several prophecies concerning each of his sons, especially concerning Judas, from whose tribe he prophesied the Messiah would come. So they were prophets. So they are said to be anointed, not that they were visibly anointed with oil, as were the priests and kings later on, but because they had the spiritual unction of the Spirit poured upon them. Verse 15. 
So they were under God protection. Verse 16. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. Speaking about the famines that happened during the time of Jacob, when Jacob and his children went to Egypt and lived there. He called for a famine. David speaks figuratively as if it was an army. God would call from one place to another. He called for the famine to happen. To let us see how obedient all creation to God and how they answer at his command. And also he wants us to see that the things that do not happen just by chance or randomly, but they are ruled by God for his own wise purpose. So David here is giving an account of the great famine that overshadowed the earth in the time of Jacob when he and all his family migrated into Egypt. But how God prepared for this famine? Verse 17, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Because of the approaching famine, God sent into Egypt before the children of Israel a man, a great man, Joseph, for the purpose of delivering Israel and all his family from this famine. The scriptures tells us that Joseph, through the envy of his brethren, was sold as a slave to some merchants on their way to Egypt. But David says he was sent by God, who in his providence allowed him to be sold and brought to Egypt. How can we understand that God sent Joseph? Did God cause or command Joseph's brother to do so? Definitely not. Because God does not tempt us with evil. But God made use of these things to accomplish his own benevolent purposes. So, this plan was initiated by Joseph's brothers. But God, out of his goodness, he changed everything to good. So even the conspiracy by Joseph's brothers, God changed it into the goodness, not only of Joseph, but the whole earth, in order to carry out his great plans. Verse 18, they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in iron. In Arabic, his soul was laid in iron. في الحديد دخلت نفسه. Being unjustly charged with a crime of his master's wife, Joseph was thrown into prison for it and had his feet bound with fetters of iron. It was very painful to him, but the false accusation, which was the cause of his imprisonment, did in him a special manner of grief. And according to David, 
his soul was in iron. A reference to the bitterness that dwelt upon his soul. And it was worse than the iron chains into which his feet were put. In all of this, Joseph was a type of Christ, whose soul was made exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Verse 19, until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Joseph's season of affliction was a time when the word of God tested him. So God used this season of affliction to test Joseph. Testing here, not like when you say a teacher tests student. Teacher tests students to know their abilities. But God already foreknew. But testing him means to prove to all the world his qualities and also to make these qualities grow and grow and grow. David refers to the time planned by God to fulfill the dreams that Joseph has seen while in his father's house that his fathers and brothers would come and bow to him. Also, he's referring to the time two years later after being forgotten by the cupbearer of Pharaoh whose dream Joseph interpreted for him. Nevertheless, everything has its own time in God's plan to fulfill his promises to his believers. The word of the Lord tested him. It tried his faith, means it, it made his faith stronger, his patience also stronger before the fulfillment of the promise of God. And when it was, it cleansed and purified him, cleared him. So when the word of God was fulfilled and Joseph became the second man in Egypt, so it purified him and cleared him of the charge made by his master's wife. For even in the view of Pharaoh, Joseph appeared to be a man in whom the Spirit of God was, as we read in Genesis 41, 38. So definitely Pharaoh knew it was a false accusation against Joseph. And Joseph was released from prison, as we read Genesis 41, 14. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. His word came to pass, mean the word of Joseph came to pass, became authoritative. So the word of Joseph came to pass when he became the second man in Egypt. So his word now his authority. Or when his word came to pass, when he was brought before Pharaoh and interpreted the dream to Pharaoh. Verse 20, the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his own house and ruler 
of all his possessions. So King Pharaoh, having heard from his butler of Joseph's wisdom, sent to the prison and let him free. He not only set him free, but he placed him over his own family and over the entire kingdom to administer it. He did not just save him from the affliction in prison, but turned his affliction into glory and honor beyond the imagination or expectation of Joseph. Joseph was brought low, but in God's timing, he was lifted up. Joseph was given authority over all the positions of the house and authority over all the princes and elders of the palace. Verse 22, to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Pharaoh placed Joseph over his kingdom, not only for the purpose of administering to the needs of the people during the famine, but also for the purpose of instructing his ministers and counselors in that government in which he seemed to be such an expert. That's why he said, teach his elders wisdom. So despite the bitterness Joseph tasted for years, he remained faithful and loving, even to the heathen elders in the royal household, whom he taught wisdom, not fearing that he would lose his position in the king's court because his trust was in God, not in people. As I said, we'll stop at verse 22. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.